An anchor splashes into the waters of Yido Bay. Yido Bay? Where is that? Today it is known as Tokyo Harbor, and the ships that have just anchored there are ships from the United States, commanded by Matthew C. Perry. Perry had sailed from the United States on November 24, 1852, with the hopes of getting a trade treaty signed with the Empire of Japan. Japan, since the early 17th century, has virtually been isolated from the Western world. It was for the purpose of commercial potentialities that the United States, now in 1854, was wanting to trade with Japan. Perry was successful in getting a treaty with the Japanese for commercial trade. To show the friendliness of the United States toward Japan, Perry gave the authorities presents. Presents like telegraph equipment and a narrow gauge railroad. These presents were accepted by the Japanese and they were impressed by the evidence of the civilized arts of the Western world. From that moment on, the empire of Japan's way of life changed. From that time that Perry's seven black ships left Yido Bay, the Japanese began to industrialize their young nation. They too wanted to enjoy the benefits that an industrialized society could give them. Japan now began a remarkable rise as a leading industrialized power in the Orient. By 1894, Japan was looking for places to sell her industrial production surplus, and she was also looking for new places from which to secure raw resources to feed her growing industries. By 1894, Japan decided to expand, and the closest place to expand was China. So little Japan waged an imperialistic war against China. Most experts in Western civilization felt that Japan had cut off more than she could chew. But much to everyone's surprise, within one year's time, Japan had wrung from China a treaty and had taken most of Korea away from China for her own purposes. Once the Western nations saw how weak China was, they all moved into China to establish what they called spheres of influence. The purpose of these so-called spheres of influence was to help the Chinese from their backward ways to a more modern way of life. And these countries like Russia, England, France, and Germany moved in to do it. But as time went by, it became apparent that these Western nations weren't really interested in helping the Chinese improve their lot. What they were most interested in doing was to get a trade monopoly in that portion of China where they had their influence. The United States became alarmed at these foreign powers moving into China and grabbing things off for themselves. Not only was it unethical and deceptive what these nations were doing, but it was also denying the United States markets from where it could sell its goods. The United States Secretary of State during the late 1890s was a man by the name of John Hay. 
He sent out diplomatic notes to all countries condemning the spheres of influence held by the several European nations in China. He suggested that the honest and right thing for all nations to do in China was, one, respect Chinese territorial rights. In other words, no nation should try to dominate the Chinese way of life. No nation should force the Chinese to do what they might not want to do. And two, all nations should uphold the ideals of fair competition in China. That means all nations of the world should be given the opportunity to sell things to China. The trade monopolies that the nations with spheres of influence had were not really in the best interest of the Chinese. What Hay was really saying boiled down to this. He was saying to the nations who had spheres of influence, if you guys aren't robbing China blind and stealing her resources from her, then you shouldn't mind the rest of the world trading with China. But if you are there and you are robbing the Chinese and stealing her resources from her, then we understand why you won't let the rest of us trade with China. This maneuver of Hayes was a political masterpiece for its day. It literally forced the nations who had spheres of influence in China to allow all nations to trade with the Chinese. This note of John Hayes then, his note which asked that all nations respect Chinese territorial rights and allow all nations to trade with China, would become known in history as the United States open door policy in China. Japan at first refused to go along with this idea of ours, for Japan had an eye for China. If Japan agreed to this note, she would be denying herself any future territorial aggrandizements there. And indeed, there was no good reason for Japan to sign any agreements to uphold the open door policy in China. For by 1904, Japan was ready to expand her holdings in China once more. Once she had consolidated her gains in Korea, Japan felt that she was ready to take more Chinese territory. But how can Japan do that? The only way that she could get more territory from China would be to drive out one of the Western powers that had a sphere of influence already established there. And so, that is exactly what Japan did. In 1904, Japan attacked the Russian sphere of influence in China. The Japanese attacked the Russians without any warning. It was a surprise attack that took place on a Sunday morning at Port Arthur, and Japan was able to sink the Russian fleet anchored there. The war dragged on for two years, and finally in 1906, the Japanese asked if the United States would mediate the situation between Russia and Japan, see if a treaty could not be brought about. The President of the United States at this time was Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt, with his vast energies, was able to bring the two warring nations together and the war ended with the belligerent powers signing the Peace of Portsmouth. Because of his role in bringing about the peace between Russia and Japan, Roosevelt was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Furthermore, the Japanese were exceedingly delighted from the results of the treaty 
and a warm friendship sprung up between the United States and Japan. In this atmosphere of goodwill, the Japanese signed an agreement with the United States in which Japan agreed to uphold the United States' open-door policy in China. This was the Root Takahira Agreement of 1908. Despite all the agreements signed with Japan, despite the warmth and friendliness between the two countries, the United States felt a certain alarm toward the infant colossus of the Far East. Japanese growth in the Pacific continued. When World War I broke out in Europe, Japan decided to cast her lot with the Allies, and on August 23, 1914, she declared war against Germany. Why? The main reason, it was hoped, would be to pick up the German spheres of influence in China and to extend Japanese influence there and also pick up the German-held islands in the Pacific. While the war was raging in Europe, Japan made its move to gain more influence in China. In January of 1915, Japan presented the government of China with 21 demands. It was a dictate aimed at achieving the fulfillment of various Japanese economic and territorial ambitions. These proposals, as the Japanese referred to them, were written rather subtly on Japanese war office stationery, which contained dreadnoughts and machine guns as watermarks. The demand stated that China agreed to grant all Japanese subjects the right of opening the mines in southern Manchuria and eastern Inner Mongolia. This was economic exploitation of the Chinese. Japan also demanded paramount influence in China. Japan said, China must agree to give full assent to all matters allowing Japan to take over all concessions in China that were here to German spheres of influence. Further, to get political control over China, the Japanese demanded that the Chinese employ influential Japanese advisors to advise the Chinese central government on political, financial, and military matters. And as far as grabbing off more Chinese territory for herself, the Japanese demanded that Japanese subjects be given the right to lease and own land in southern Manchuria and in eastern Inner Mongolia. Japan felt that she could do this because of the war in Europe. The powers of Europe were too busily engaged in a war to voice any serious objections. The only possible fly in the ointment that Japan could see was the United States. But Japan, after analyzing the situation, felt that the United States alone would do nothing. It was worth the risk, and it was Japan's golden opportunity. To avoid any confrontation with the United States, the demands presented to China were done in secret, with the Japanese threat of war if the Chinese yelled for Uncle Sam. But as quietly as the Japanese tried to keep the news, it leaked out. This policy of Japan's to expand her power in China and the North Pacific would contribute to a United States-Japanese rivalry in the Far East at once. 
And as a result, the United States sent a stiff note of protest to the Japanese government in May of 1915. The note registered the United States' disapproval of the Japanese move and declared that the United States would not recognize any agreement that would impair the political or territorial integrity of China, the United States' open-door policy, or the treaty rights of the United States in China. The fly in the ointment had come alive. The United States' stand became the great obstacle to Japan's realization of her objectives in China. To iron out any misunderstandings, the Japanese now sent Kikujiro Ishii to Washington, D.C. to see if the United States and Japan could not come to some agreement on the China situation. Ambassador Ishii would work with our Secretary of State, who in 1917 was Robert Lansing. Together, they worked out the so-called Lansing-Ishii Agreement. The United States recognized the territorial propinquity, closeness or kinship, of Japan to China. And this, in the United States' opinion, gave the Japanese a special interest in that country, particularly in those parts that were contiguous or close to Japan. As for Japan, on her part, she reaffirmed respect for the United States' open-door policy in China and agreed to guarantee Chinese independence and territorial integrity. At best, the Lansing-Ishi Agreement was nothing more than a stopgap measure by the United States designed to prevent full recognition of Japan's position in China. In short, Japan's 21 demands were scaled down quite a degree. With the First World War now at an end, the peace conference takes place in Paris, France. All nations who fought against Germany were represented, so Japan was there. Japan was at this conference for one reason, to pick up the German-held islands in the Pacific, which she did. During the 1920s, many attempts were made to keep the peace of the world from being shattered again. One of the first attempts was the Washington Naval Disarmament Conference of 1921-1922. The United States not only proposed a limitation upon future naval building, but also the substantial scrapping of ships already built or under construction. The United States offered to scrap 845,000 tons of its ships, if other nations would accordingly scrap ships. It was finally accepted by the different nations and a ratio was established for the capital ships and the building of them in the future. The ratio that was established was 553. In other words, for every five tons of capital ship that the United States had, England would have five and Japan would have three. Japan resented this and did not want to go along with the idea since her empire in the Pacific relied upon naval power. But eventually, Japan was coerced into going along with the other nations. Although Japan did sign the Washington Agreement, she felt that the purpose of the conference, as far as the Pacific and the Orient was concerned, was to put a break 
on her expansion there. Japan felt that the United States had used economic pressures to force her to sign the Washington Agreement and that the United States was keeping Japan from expanding in China. On the other hand, the United States felt that Japan had made out at the conference quite well. For one thing, it was demonstrated that Japan was a first-class power entitled to a position of equality with the leading powers. She was guaranteed national security by the United States and England, and Japan had gained recognition of its mandates in the Pacific. Everything during the 1920s seemed to indicate that peace and prosperity were here to stay. By 1928, over 62 nations of the world signed the Kellogg-Briand Peace Pact, which outlawed war as a method of arbitration between countries. But by 1930, the great military, feudal, and industrial interests which controlled Japan were beginning to bust through the paper bonds of treaties that Japan had signed during the 1920s. During this period of time, a man by the name of Tanaka took power in Japan. He instituted a new expansion plan for the Empire of Japan. Tanaka's plan was based upon the conquest of not only China, Manchuria, and Outer Mongolia, but also for the eventual domination of Southeast Asia. This would include the Netherlands East Indies, French Indochina, the Philippines, and much of Australia. To do this, Tanaka said, would require many things to be in the favor of Japan. He said that Japan should make her first move if a world depression came along, and that first move should be into Manchuria. Why should Japan wait until a Great Depression? Because, said Tanaka, the nations of the world will be worrying more about their own miseries and will not care about what is happening in Manchuria. After consolidating that position, the next step for Japan's conquest should be the seacoast of China. Never mind with the interior of China. If you control the outlet of China to the sea, sooner or later the interior of China will have to fall to your exploit. All of Tanaka's plan was on a timetable once it was put into effect. But would it work? What if the United States or England protested? Tanaka's answer for that was quite simple. These powers will probably protest, but that will be as far as it will go. After protests and threats and blusterings have gone by the way, and some kind of small conditions are set down somewhere in a treaty, they will then quit yelling, and Japan will have China. After the seacoast of China had been secured, the next step would be risky. Japan would be moving toward French Indochina and the Netherlands East Indies. Japan must have, according to Tanaka's plans, the Netherlands East Indies under their control before 1940. Why? Because, said Tanaka, by that time Japan will have pushed the other powers of the world as far as she can. By that time the other powers of the world will be ready to use force to stop Japan from her expansion. 
Since Japan was 100% dependent on the United States for its oil to run her industry and war machine, she must gain control of the Netherlands East Indies because that country had oil-rich resources. This was in case a war did break out between the United States and Japan. The Netherlands East Indies were a must. So much for the Great Tanaka Plan, which eventually became known as the New Order of Japan, or the East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere of Japan. Then as history would have it, a Great World Depression took place in 1929. If Japan was to start her expansion, the time was now. In 1931, Japan initiated her quest to dominate the Orient. It started with what is known in history as the Mukden Incident. On the night of September 18, 1931, a mysterious explosion damaged the South Manchurian Railway near Mukden. The Japanese blamed the Chinese nationalists for the bombing and were immediately on the move. The explosion had taken place at 10.30 p.m. and by dawn Mukden was completely in the hands of the Japanese. The Japanese moved with a lightning-like precision that could only have been the result of a well-considered plan. In Japan, many government officials of the old guard diplomatic corps were struck dumb that such a thing had happened. They didn't even know about it. The truth of the matter was that the whole affair had been worked out in secret by the firebrand expansionist officers of the Kwantung Army. They had become thoroughly disgusted with the slow-moving attempts of expansion of the diplomatic group in the Japanese government, and so they decided to move on their own. It was a dangerous and bold move for them to make, for if it failed, it would mean their heads. But it didn't fail. It worked, and by the end of the year, Japan was in full control of South Manchuria. Now we begin to see something interesting in the Japanese hierarchy. A power struggle is going on. It will take place over the next years between the military men who want to run the government of Japan and the men of diplomacy who are in control of Japan's government and want to keep that control. The military feels that the only way they can get power is to embarrass the old guard diplomatic group. Show the old guard up as a bunch of wishy-washy, spineless people who were afraid of their own shadows. The military group felt secure with the old adage that it was hard to argue with success. And indeed, the taking of South Manchuria by the Japanese army was difficult for the old guard diplomacy corps to argue with. Now came the question, would Tanaka's ideas, as he had put forth before his death, be true? Would the rest of the world do anything but protest? The answer was yes, he certainly was right. The United States was the first to protest to Japan about the unwanted aggression on her part in China. Our Secretary of State, Henry L. Stimson, immediately protested to Japan that she had broken most of the treaties that she had signed during the 1920s. Japan had violated the provisions of the Washington Naval Disarmament Conference and the Kellogg-Briand Peace Pact in launching its unofficial war in China. Furthermore, Stimson went on to say 
that the government of the United States refused to recognize any treaty that Japan might force upon China which might impair the sovereignty, independence, or the territorial and administrative integrity of the Republic of China. What's more, what Japan was doing in Manchuria was in violation of the United States open door policy. It was indeed a hot protest, but it was just as Tanaka had predicted. The United States made no forceful moves to try to get the Japanese out of Manchuria. The United States hoped that they could talk the Japanese out of it. The United States had no intention of shedding blood over this incident. The British government next took the aggressive move of the Japanese to the League of Nations. Wasn't that one of the jobs of the League, to preserve the peace? And wasn't Japan a member of the League? Well then, let the League of Nations handle the entire situation. Four days after the bombing incident, the Council of the League of Nations met at Geneva and advised both sides, China and Japan, to withdraw their troops. The Japanese objected on the grounds that it would prove unsatisfactory to Japanese public opinion and that it was a private dispute which could be worked out by the two nations involved without the intercession of any third party. While the League was consuming time and verbiage, Japan was overrunning Manchuria and destroying Chinese lives and property. By the end of the year, Japan established a new puppet regime in Manchuria. They called it Manchuko. In the meantime, the League of Nations sent a commission to Mukden to find out what happened. This committee was headed by Lord Lighton, and hence the committee became known as the Lighton Committee. The Lighton Committee made its report back to the League in 1933. In short, the committee found that Japan's action in Manchuria was not in self-defense, and that the creation of Manchuko by Japan was not the result of what the people living in that area wanted. It recommended that Japan withdraw its troops and leave. The League further adopted a non-recognition policy which the United States had recommended some time before. On March 27, 1933, Japan issued an imperial rescript proclaiming that Japan was officially withdrawing from the League of Nations. The Japanese representative, Mr. Matsuoka, then walked out of the Great Hall of the League of Nations in Geneva. Once out of the League of Nations, Japan went her own way and dealt with China the way she saw fit. She continued her policy of expanding. Japan took part of China, and then after she had consolidated that gain, she prepared to bite off the next chunk. On July 7, 1937, there occurred an incident at the Marco Polo Bridge at Huanping, just outside of Peiping. Shots were exchanged, and Japan used this incident to start her brutal aggression upon the body of China proper. What the Japanese referred to as the Chinese incident had happened. It was apparent that the Japanese Empire was launching upon a vast and ambitious program of military aggression and conquest of the Far East. How far the Japanese might press their grandiose undertaking, no one knew. But there was one thing that was evident. The United States 
could not remain passively indifferent to a development which threatened to overturn the Far Eastern political structure. In October of 1937, President Franklin D. Roosevelt delivered his quarantine speech. Here the President urged that an international quarantine of aggressors take place. It would be the only way to save the peace. And to back this up, the United States imposed an embargo upon the export of airplanes to Japan. It appears that we were giving our moral support to the Chinese. But as far as the people of Japan were concerned, a new spirit of conquest entered their veins. Kodo, which means the imperial way, became the battle cry for Japan. To the Japanese, Kodo envisaged for them an achievement of world peace and world order through Japanese control over the backward peoples of Eastern Asia. It was a most sacred mission for Japan, and it brought about a patriotic fervor and sincere conviction that they were on a holy war. As the Chinese incident rolled on, the Japanese began bombing Nanking. These air raids in Nanking and other Chinese cities caused widespread loss of American lives. Americans, who were also missionaries in China, were endangered, as well as members of the United States embassies in China. As the loss of life and property of Americans mounted, Secretary of State Cordell Hull delivered a sharp protest to Japan. He told them, This government holds the view that any general bombing of an extensive area wherein there resides a large populace engaged in peaceful pursuits is unwarranted and contrary to the principles of law and humanity. Furthermore, the United States government expresses the earnest hope that further bombings in and around the city of Nanking be avoided. This was strong language from an official of the United States government and the Japanese Foreign Office told its ambassador in Washington, D.C. to give the American government the utmost assurances that all care would be taken in the future. Ambassador Sieto delivered the message of reassurance and hoped for continued friendship between the two countries. Not more than a month later, the United States decided that perhaps the best move in China would be to notify the missionaries and the embassy staffs that the thing to do would be to leave China until things had stabilized. Furthermore, the United States told its people to be at Nanking on the Yangtze River on December 12, 1937, and there they would be transported to safety by the United States Navy. The United States Navy would send one of its gunboats up the Yangtze to Nanking and take the civilians out of that area. So that there would be no misunderstanding to all of this, the Japanese Foreign Office was notified that our boat would be in the waters of the Yangtze and that we hoped the Japanese military officials would be notified and that safe conduct would be given our ship. Mr. Hirota, the Japanese Foreign Minister, gave the United States full assurances that everything would be fine and that the military had been notified of the United States' intentions to withdraw its nationals from this area of China. 
The gunboat Panay loaded its passengers to overflow. Then it started down the Yangtze. It was a clear and sunny day. The boat was overloaded, as was to be expected, but despite the crowding, the ship was doing well. Then out of this clear blue sky came six Japanese planes heading for the Panay. What's the matter with them? Couldn't they see the American flag flying from the stern of the ship? Weren't they notified that this was a United States vessel? In a moment, the questions were answered. Japanese aircraft now swooped down and began bombing the Panay. On board the Panay, along with other civilians, was a movie tone newsreel photographer by the name of Norman Alley. With his camera loaded, he began to take pictures of this entire raid. The skipper of the Panay knew what he had to do. He had to get the passengers aboard to land. So he beached the craft on shore. While the passengers were attempting to escape in lifeboats and even by swimming, the Japanese aircraft swooped down and strafed the area. Next, the skipper of the Panay pulled the boat away from the shore and took it to mid-channel. And there the Japanese finished it off. Down she went. And all of this was recorded by Norman Alley on film. The moving spirit behind this attack was the local Japanese military commander by the name of Colonel Kingo Hashimoto. He deliberately staged this attack for two reasons. First, he felt that Japan should by force push the United States out of China, and second, this, he felt, would be a good way to embarrass the old guard diplomatic group in Japan. He felt that this strong show would allow the military to take over Japan and that it would also show that there was nothing that the United States could do against the great military machine of the Empire of Japan. News of the Panay incident came to Washington, D.C. by way of the Japanese ambassador, Mr. Sayoto. He rushed up to Secretary of State Hull at a formal reception and apologized for what happened. Hull was speechless. This was the first news that he had had of the incident. Ambassador Sieto went on to say that it was a regrettable mistake, that the Japanese aircraft thought it was a Chinese vessel, that the weather was cloudy, and that the pilots couldn't make out the American flag. All this would later be debunked when Norman Alley's film of the incident was shown to the military officials in Washington, D.C. No, it was not any accident as the Japanese wanted us to believe. It was a deliberate and unprovoked attack. Public opinion in the United States was divided sharply. There were those that felt that we should get out of the Orient and let the Orientals settle their own disputes. And there were those who wanted a call to arms. On December 13, 1937, President Roosevelt took command of the situation. He called the Japanese ambassador in and expressed his deep shock and concern over this indiscriminate bombing and requested that the Emperor of Japan himself so be informed. Further, he felt that a formal expression of regret should come from the Emperor himself that compensation should be made for the damages caused by Japan, as well as having the persons responsible dealt with severely. And lastly, the United States 
would want guarantees against any repetition of similar attacks in the future. Ambassador Seito gave his apologies, bowed politely, and forwarded the message directly to Japan. The President, in asking the Emperor of Japan for satisfaction on this incident, had pulled a shrewd move. The President felt that no matter how sincere the Japanese Foreign Office was about what had happened, they still did not have any potent control over the actions of the Japanese Army or Navy. By asking for the Emperor to reply, the President felt if regrets came from him with assurances, this would tantamount to an imperial rebuke to the armed forces and would be a great blow to their prestige. Japanese traditional custom would demand the resignation of those who were responsible, and it might give an opportunity to those in Japan who could exert a moderating influence on Japanese policy a chance to work. The Panay incident was finally settled in April of 1938. The Japanese officers involved in the plot were recalled to Japan and publicly disgraced. The military's hope of establishing a military dictatorship in Japan was doomed for the time being, as the emperor sided with the old guard diplomatic group. The Japanese paid indemnities of $2,214,007.06 and gave assurances that this would not happen again. While Ambassador Saito was relating all of this to the government of the United States, he suggested that such incidents like this could best be prevented in the future by the United States if it would remove itself from the Orient and let Japan develop things in that part of the world. In other words, Japan was slamming the United States open door policy shut, right in our face. The response from the United States was simply this. We felt that we not only had an economic interest in China, but we also had a moral duty to society to prevent the domination of one people by another especially since the weaker nation had no way of bargaining with the military power. Two months after the Panay incident was settled, the United States Congress answered the idea that we get out of the Orient with the passage of the Vincent Naval Act. This act called for the construction of a two-ocean navy. And since the United States had abided by the conditions of the Washington Naval Disarmament Conference of 1921-1922, this meant we would have a lot of building to do to catch up with the Japanese in the construction of capital ships.